Hi, I'm Tom Power. Welcome to Toy Heart, a podcast about bluegrass. This is the last episode of season two here from Nashville is my conversation with Allison Krauss. I remember, you know, the first time I looked out in the audience and saw people singing words to our songs that only we had recorded. That was just a really crazy moment. Just never thought it would end up being there. Never thought we'd hear back from Rounder. Yeah. Never thought we would hear from Rounder in the first place. If this is your first time listening, you can hear full interviews with Jerry Douglas, Allison Brown, Bela Fleck, Larry Sparks, Jody Stecker, and so many more wherever you get your podcast. Thank you so much for listening. Later on. Welcome to Basic Folk, where we have honest conversations with folk musicians. I'm your host, Cindy Howes. Oh, wow. Today on the podcast, it's a pretty big deal. Livingston Taylor is our guest. Before we get into exactly what Liv and I talk about, let's get into our sponsors for Basic Folk. Basic Folk is supported by Tina and Her Pony. If you like fresh takes on traditional music, you might like Tina and Her Pony. Follow them on Spotify or at Tina and Her Pony. This episode of Basic Folk receives support in more ways than one from motivational life coach Jana Forrest, who helps individuals see their own potential, overcome obstacles, and move forward. Visit JanetForrest.com and mention Basic Folk. You'll receive 25% off your first month of coaching. Livingston Taylor has managed to carve out an impressive and interesting career as not only a successful songwriter, but also an extremely effective professor at the Berklee College of Music in Boston, where he has been teaching stage performance for 30 years this very year. He's been teaching since 1989. And yes, uh, if you didn't know, he is the younger brother to the very famous James Taylor, Uh, I think this is a very interesting and vast conversation with a pretty fascinating guy. And to be honest, like when he's talking, I kind of have a hard time following where his brain goes sometimes. But I feel like um, Liv shares some really interesting stories on the podcast. Also, while we're talking about telling stories, he has this really interesting speech pattern he uses when he's like telling a really good story so I actually like stopped him and asked him about that to break that down a little bit Uh, he generously talks about his relationship with his late brother Alex also his very good friend Carly Simon and his older brother James he shares this really um, funny yet sad story of how James taught him how to play the guitar when they were younger apparently like if he would get the guitar part wrong that James was trying to teach him James would, quote, slug me, according to Livingston, um, which is kind of like out of character for the like peaceful, easygoing James Taylor. But I guess when you have a younger brother, you do what you do. Anyways, this is a very fun conversation uh, on Basic Folk. I was pretty nervous to talk to Liv because um, he's somebody who has a long, interesting career, lots of stories to tell. And I want to make sure that you know, we get the best ones, and I'm fairly certain uh, there are some good ones in here. So thank you for listening. We'll hear a clip of a song. This is actually from a live album that Liv is going to be releasing in January, and this is one of his most well-known songs. Let's get into uh, a live version from Livingston Taylor of the song I Will Be In Love With You on Basic Folk. 
Livingston Taylor, this is so great. Thank you so much for doing this. Oh, Cindy, so nice to be with you today. Uh, so we're just going to talk about a bunch of different topics. We can talk about any topic you want. Great. Um, so you grew up in Chapel Hill to an incredibly musical family. Um, and I'm wondering how music played into your early life. It's a... I've always loved music. I've always loved melody. I've always loved singing. In order to be able to sing and to continue to earn a living, it requires also that you play. And so I play piano and I play guitar. And uh, we're guitar-centric in this particular podcast. But um, (laughs) uh, So music was always there. My mother was a trained singer and my father... Uh, was eventually dean of the medical school at the University of North Carolina in Chapel Hill. He went to Harvard Medical School. So there was sort of an academic bent and patina through our lives. But but we went in the direction of music. Uh, I was a terrible student. And I knew that uh, at the age of 16, I really understood that I was going to have to invent a life for myself. And that involved being able to play the guitar and play it well. So I really went to work on the guitar at uh, 16, 15 and 16. And by the time I was 17 and 18, I was a good guitar player. Before we go through your whole childhood, I want to know more about um, these kitchen concerts that your mom used to hold. Well, yes, there's there. I'm not sure that it was as formal as that. (laughs) We would certainly sit around and play. And I'd listen to James play, and my brother Alex would sing, and my sister Kate. And uh, um, we have a little brother, Hugh, who's probably a little young to be participating in that. But yeah, it was, uh, I, I don't think it was as formal as kitchen concerts. Uh, maybe it's gotten more formal, uh, envisioned as more formal mm. in the rents of time. The kitchen but is a good place for It's music. a good place. Well, yeah. it's a place people hang out a lot, no question. Did you and James have an affinity for building and inventing your own instruments? Um, we liked tonality and, uh, and also very much liked drone. I had, when I was a boy, we'd summer on Martha's Vineyard Island. And uh, as a kid, I had a little three-horsepower motor on a little boat, and it was slow as it could humanly be. So I'd have lots of time to sing harmonies against the drone of that, and I would sing against that. 
I don't sort of view it as inventing instruments. If we could find some tonality across the top of a bottle or something, we would. But uh, So you were talking a little bit about your parents and your mom. Um, in reading about your growing up, it seemed like she played a big role in encouraging her kids to be creative with music. Well, I think, I think so. She, um, my mother was raised in Newburyport and uh, north of Boston, and her father was a, uh, was a boat builder and a fisherman and very much a project-oriented person, as is my mother, as is my father. So this notion of thinking about a song, writing a song, finishing a song, Recording a song, recording an album, releasing an album. Again, project-oriented. It's something my family seems to do well. We like starting a project, finishing a project, and then starting another one. What if you don't finish a project? Interesting. Uh, we're good at finishing things. It's, it's a, we understand that if the project isn't done, then you've put the effort in, and it has no value. No, you must finish a project, come hell or high water. Wow. The tailors do not leave stones unturned. No, we really don't. We're really good at finishing projects. What about your dad when it came to musical creativity? He was surrounded by all these musicians. Was he one himself? Yeah, he was a, he was a wonderful singer. I remember when I was, uh, when I was a kid on March fifteenth, 1956. Alan J. Lerner and Fritz Lowe opened a play on Broadway called My Fair Lady. And probably by March 16th, 1956, my parents would have had the cast album. And they would play that album. And eventually, my father would wind up walking around the house and he would sing at the top of his lungs. This song written by Alan J. Lerner, who wrote the lyrics. Fritz Lowe wrote the music. And if you listen to way this, the way this song is assembled, you can hear that down low you'll have closed vowels, but when they go up, when the melody goes up, the vowels are open. This is the kind of song that makes a good singer sound great. And so my father would walk around the house singing this at the top of his lungs because he loved the way he sounded. And he loved who he was when he was singing this song. And he would sing, I have often walked down this street before. But the pavement always stayed beneath my feet before. All at once am I several stories high here on the street where you live. Are there lilac trees in the heart of town? Can you find a lark? In any other part of town Does enchantment pour Out of every door No, it's just on the street Where you live And oh, the towering feeling 
just to know somehow you are near the overpowering feeling that any second you may suddenly appear people stop and stare they don't bother me there's nowhere else on earth that I'd rather be let the time go by I don't care if I can be here on the street where you It's good. It's really it's good, good writing. You know, and I'll say to my students all the time about writing songs that it's a very good idea, if you want to write good songs, to play songs that are written by great writers for great singers. In 1960, multi-track recording came in to regular use. And what happened after multi-track recording is that it was possible then to have singer-songwriters. And because before multi-track recording, there'd be 75 people in a studio, and everybody would show up at 11 o'clock on a Tuesday, and they'd all have to do their job. So this notion of the singer-songwriter was really a function of being able to record a basic track and then work with the singer or the songwriter, who perhaps was both, and then perfect what they were. You didn't have to have the band there. So, so it really changed, multi-track recording really changed the face of what was there. The problem for my students and the problem for singer-songwriters is that uh, when the singer-songwriter is the same person, the singer tolerates sloppiness out of the writer, and the writer tolerate sloppiness out of the singer. And uh, that wouldn't be the case if you and I, Cindy, had written a song and Frank Sinatra was going to record it the next morning. Trust me, we'd be sweating every syllable. Accountability would yeah. exist. Yeah. Is it all right to ask you to talk more about your relationship with your late brother, Alex? Oh, sure, sure. It sounds I, like um, he had a huge influence on you. Well, he was a great older brother. How much older was he? Um, I, uh, let me see, I am 68 now, 69. My sister's 69. Um, uh, my brother James is 71. Alex would be, now be 72 or seven, just 73. We were close in all age. Oh, in a row. Yeah, yeah, uh, all packed in. And so he died I'm thinking that he died at 45, around there. He was alcoholic and um, uh, never able to get sobriety, and he died of a lethal dose of alcohol. A uh, sad day for us. But he was, uh, he was always, uh, God, he was so encouraging all the time. And also, I was sort of a skinny, wise-ass kid in Chapel Hill, North Carolina. 
<laughs> but with no strength, I was still presumptuous and arrogant. I get that, yeah. And, and it was certainly tolerable because everybody knew that any trespass visited upon me would be answered by my older brother, Alex. So if anybody messed with me, they would be pounded into fine dust by my brother, Alex. <laughs> now, occasionally he pounded me into fine dust, but that was sort of uh, a part of the price of, of admission. Yep. <laughs> and uh, no, he was a, uh, a wonderful man and a, just an effusive, generous man. And uh, it's, uh, he's missed. Did he brought you to the guitar? In a way, is that right? Yeah, he brought me to the guitar. Um, he had a guitar that he had painted blue because Elvis Presley had a blue guitar. And I picked that up and started working with it. But James was playing guitar. And what I would do is I'd watch James play. And then I'd play some of the things that he was playing. And if I got it wrong, uh, James would uh, slug me. <laughs> But uh, that was the bad news. The good news is that uh, he would show me how to do it the way he was doing it. And so for the price of a sore arm, I got really good guitar instruction. Seems James is a wonderful uh, guitar player. What? Seems very out of character for James Taylor to hit somebody. Well, uh, if you're a younger brother and uh, I'm 13 and he's 15, I think it's a little easier. Yeah. Okay, I can imagine that. Uh, and you have a good relationship with James. And I read somewhere, um, and I was wondering if I could get more insight on this, that you admire each other's careers, but you don't want each other's careers? Well, there's this sort of sense, given James' fame and visibility, there's this sense that that somehow uh, my career is... Uh, I got second prize or something, and, and just nothing could be further from the truth. I get to teach college. James lives in the glare of the photons of fame, and he has to live in that life. I get to have anonymity, unless I don't want it. I, I really admire James so much. I don't want his career. I like my career. I like the comment you made about you don't, you don't have fame unless you want it? Like, do you pull the Livingston Taylor card at, like, a Starbucks or something? Well, sure. I don't... Um, uh, these things, as we get older and our ripple gets closer to the edge of the pond, um, sure, I pull out the James Taylor, Livingston Taylor card. Um, one time, years ago, I ran into Tip O'Neill, and I saw Tip uh, at the Boston Harbor Hotel. And I walked up and introduced myself, and I said, Speaker O'Neill, my name is Livingston Taylor. And I, he paused, and he looked at me, big, strong man, and said, Livingston Taylor, you one of those singing Taylor boys? <laughs> and, and, and so uh, James and I have referred to ourselves as those singing Taylor boys ever since. And, oh, my gosh. Yeah, if was, you guys did an album together called The Singing Taylor yeah, Boys, that's right. it would be great. singing Taylor boys. It you would have, be indeed. You have, um, and I, I didn't plan on asking this question, mm -hmm. but you have a pattern of speech that is very interesting to me in the sense of it sounds like a very good storyteller um, speech. I don't know if you know what I'm talking about. Do you know what I'm talking about? Well, I do know what you're talking about. I love telling stories. 
I love speaking about where songs come from. Alan J. Lerner and Fritz Lowe. Or, There's like um, a, when you, we, you said a year, 1969, and then yeah. you like leave a little pause in between the words. Yeah. Well, you want people to conceptualize what you've said. And also people love to have stories told to them. Um, yes, tell me stories. Yeah, of course. <laughs> it's a great it's a great storytelling voice. Yeah. And it's, it's, it's interesting, certainly for our political leaders. We love it when they sing to us. It was one of the strengths of Barack Obama or Franklin Roosevelt. Jack Kennedy was a good singer. Ronald Reagan was a good singer. They sang to us. And we'd listen to them tell us about what we could be and where we could go and what we could achieve. And... It made us feel good about ourselves. Like, I really believe you when you use that little pause. Yeah. Yeah. Um, anything else? No. no. I, I, it's Words are important. And I say this to my students all the time when they introduce songs. I say, be careful. Don't rush it. You've got time. Put in your T's and D's. Enunciate clearly and well. Make your song, make your lyrics effortless. Take them to people and place them on their ears and say to them, I'm going to create a world that requires no effort on your part. So good. It's so good and so much fun. (laughs) Have you ever considered life coaching? It's a thing that is happening. And I've got a great person to recommend to you. Janet Forrest, who you may have heard, sponsored at the beginning and end of Basic Folk. It's coaching by Janet Forrest. You can go to her website, JanetForrest.com. Myself, I've done some sessions with her and found that she is a great listener. She is a great person to hold you accountable and help you move forward in your professional life in order to be a happier and more positively functioning person in the workplace. I think that's a very powerful thing. A powerful gift is to be able to work with someone who you can say like, all of these frustrations are happening with me and Janet has the tools and the vocabulary to name what's happening to you and help you create a plan to move forward. JanetForrest.com to find out more. Mention Basic Folk, you get 25% off of your sessions. JanetForrest.com. Carly Simon. Carly Simon. Close friend dear, of yours. A close friend of mine, a wonderful woman, and uh, and, a, and a real, uh, when I write songs, uh, uh, Carly is my editor. I take her songs, and she uh, she's, she's a great, great pop writer, but she's also a great song editor, and I'll take her and she'll suggest things to me and directions I can go, that sort of thing, and a, various songs. Very helpful. You were the first tailor that she met? Yes. Carly you... and I uh, used to have a singing duo together when, uh, oh, that was a long time ago. And, uh, yeah, and eventually she met my brother James, and they got married, had a couple of beautiful children, uh, got unmarried, which happens, I guess, sometimes. And uh, But through it all, Carly and I have remained very close. That's great. Um, so you were talking about 
your brother Alex a little while ago, and before he passed away, you actually gave up alcohol? Is that timeline Yes. Uh, I, I was mildly drunk on my 39th birthday, and I looked at myself in the mirror, and I saw that my uh, father had been really crippled by alcohol and limited by alcohol, had a very successful life in spite of it, but really limited what he could do. Uh, alcoholism runs in my family. My brother Alex was uh, fully alcoholic. And I just looked in the mirror at 39, and I had just started teaching at the Berkeley College of Music. And I said, I cannot continue to drink and be around students. It just isn't going to end well. And um, uh, at that point, I looked in the mirror. I said, uh, I'll stop soon. And that lasted about five, uh, uh, about 15 seconds. And I laughed at myself and said, if I say I'm going to stop later, that means I'm not going to stop. If -hmm. you're going to stop, you're going to do it right now. Mm -hmm. And I did. I stopped drinking and uh, have had 30 years of sobriety since then and really, really love. And the thing that, that, that got me The phrase that I use, the phrase is, it is sad to be ready and not be called. And it is tragic to be called and not be ready. And when I drank, I wasn't ready. And I didn't see myself as that. I wanted to be ready always. And so when I stopped drinking, it really freed me. Do you mean be ready for life? Be ready for anything. And I say this to my students all the time. Your job isn't to be called. Your job is to be ready to be called. You are to be practiced and sharp and clear. And when called upon, but because to actually be called upon requires an alignment of the stars that may or may not happen. But... Again, sad to be ready and not be called, tragic to be called and not be ready. Uh, Over the course of your career, what has been your relationship with balancing confidence and humility? Well, uh, you know, um, I don't know. I'm not a very humble guy. It's not, um, uh, I'm I'm opinionated and I'm persnickety and I'm, um, But that said, I really love striving for the highest we can be. And I certainly love that for my students. They've come to the Berkeley College of Music. Now think about this. What they've had is they've had this vision that they could live life, perhaps, as a creator. And I can tell you that creators are treated like gods. They are treated unbelievably well. You know, how are they treating Bill Gates? Treating him okay? Mm-hmm. Giving him up oh, uh, $60, $70 billion. How are they treating Elon Musk? How are they treating Jeff Bezos? How are they treating Beyonce or my brother James? And the answer is that creators are treated very, very well. And my students come to the Berkeley College of Music because they have this sense that they might be able to be one of the creators, one 
of the gods. And so I'll look at them and I'll go, good for you. Others are scared for you, but not me. Good career choice. But now we get to the great irony of all of it. The only way you can be deified is by the advocacy of mortals. So you're going to need an audience, and they get to rule. Lots of people want to be one of the gods. If you want mortals to advocate for your ascension to Mount Olympus, I suggest you deliver things to them that improve the quality of their lives. That's great. I have no follow-up question. It's <laughs> very good. I had this uh, idea when you said living, yeah. um, living in a high level. If you're always up at that high level, how are people who aren't on that same level going to relate to you? Again, the great paradox is that the only way Bill Gates gets to be Bill Gates as if somebody buys his software. The fact is that there are four survival-based things that you must have. Food, water, shelter, and oxygen. Beyond that, everything is done and chosen for one of two reasons. It either helps you tribally or reproductively. Other than that, After your survival is assured, then everything is a tribal-slash-reproductive decision. The only reason why somebody is going to buy what you offer, is going to support it, is going to advocate for it, is that it has improved their lives. It's made them feel better about themselves, or they think it's going to make them feel better about themselves. So... I say to my students, you need them. They do not need you. Behave accordingly. I've read that quote of yours before, and I don't know if I can agree Hmm. with it. I am not a performer. Yeah. But I know that I need performers. Yes. as As a spectator. Well, you need performers because your four basics are taken care of. You have food. You have water. You have shelter. And you have oxygen. Trust me, if you have tickets to a Livingston Taylor concert and you haven't eaten any food in a day and a half, before you come to my show, you're going to go get a slice of pizza. So Livingston Taylor, if your uh, survival is being pushed at, trust me, I will be the furthest thing from Mm. your mind. Yeah, I guess when you put it in that context, but I wonder... Not to keep pushing you. No, on that's this okay. Point. You can uh, you can push all you want, Sam. Uh, I want to know about that that um, the metaphor that you're talking about, but there's also the aspect of um, you know doing something for the tribe, doing something for reproductive purposes. But then, what about doing something for yourself? I don't personally believe that it's possible to separate yourself from your need to reproduce and your need to be involved with a tribe. Um, I'm I'm interested in the fact that if you are the worst criminal ever and you're sentenced to six life terms, how do they punish a prisoner in that situation who's behaving badly? They put them into solitary. Even the most asocial people amongst us have to have the interaction 
with other human beings. We are very, very basically tribal and interactive. Mm. All right. I mean, that's that's my belief. And, <laughs> I, uh, I, just, and I think it's just so interesting how you can break everything down like that. It's, you have such an interesting brain. Well, I I really like figuring out how things work. What do human beings need? And <laughs> what do they want? <laughs> and that becomes that becomes uh, an interesting question. Mm. Okay. Yeah. Well, so you've broken that down and that's great. I would love to hear you break down stage fright. Um, well, I speak about stage fright. The reason why people become fearful is that to go on stage, to go in front of a group of people, what happens is that you're asking them to suspend what they're doing, stop what they're doing, and they're leading perfectly good lives, and pay attention to your vision. And what happens is you become terrified that your vision won't justify the interruption of their lives. And that's why you get nervous, that you will not be enough. The problem with stage fright, I say this to my students, the problem with being nervous is that when you're nervous, you're thinking about yourself. Uh, trust me, they're not paying you to think about you. They're paying you to think about them. And so uh, my advice to my students vis-a-vis -vis nervousness is simple. Knock it off. How dare you? How dare you think about yourself when your job is to think about them? Uh, how do your students teach you? Oh, my goodness. This is so badly lopsided because they teach me a lot more than I ever teach them. I'll see somebody, and when they walk on stage, they look like a beautiful, lovely person. They start to play, sing their song, and it doesn't sound any good. And I think, well, why? Why is that happening? And it happens for a reason. As I say to my students all the time, nothing happens for no reason. Break it down. Figure it out. Why does this work? Why does it not work? And in, being able, in teaching them to do that, then they'll get to be able to break down other people's performances, take from them the good parts, leave to one side the less good parts, and, uh, and improve their own performance. Great. Can you tell me about the bow tie? Well, I had a television show one time in 1984. I hosted a, a syndicated television show, a music show called This Week's Music, out of New York. It was a Viacom production. Sounds like an early MTV. Yeah. Um, this was... Um, you were Carson Daly. Yeah, basically. <laughs> and uh, I hosted the show. It didn't... Uh, and I started wearing a bow tie then. But before that, I'd been wearing a, a tie and a suit when I came on stage. I like dressing well on stage. And so I just started wearing a bow tie when I taught. And it sort of turns into a uniform, and a uniform is worthwhile. Can you talk about the significance of nature in your creative life? That's an interesting question. I spend a lot of time... I go to remote places. I go up to Alaska. I have um, a lot of friends who live in Alaska. And I love it when I get to a place where there is no imprint of human beings. It's one of the reasons I love to fly so much, 
because when you get above the clouds, you are absolutely alone in a absolute fractal world. There is no sense that there has ever been anybody there. You are the first. You are alone in that space, and I find that enormously attractive. And so I like that isolation. But I also do that in thought. My, I really have a good time with my brain. And I wake up in the morning and I just think, uh, I have a couple of coffee, a cup of coffee, okay, two cups of coffee. And <laughs> I tend to wake up at sort of 5.30, 6 o'clock. And I just wait to see what adventure my brain will go on. And uh, it entertains me mightily. Uh, do you have a spiritual practice or a connection to spirituality? I love human beings' spirituality. I don't personally go to church. Um, I believe that I have a spiritual core. I believe that all human beings have a spiritual core. And I love the fact that human beings create deities because what they bestow on their deities is all-knowing and all-seeing. And then they beseech those deities to look with favor on their enterprise. And the idea that you've asked a deity to look upon you and look with favor on your journey allows you to take that journey without knowing what the result will be. It's really a remarkable human trait. And I say human trait, but I'm, I'm, I'm not at all sure that, that other creatures don't share that. When I think about human beings and the single thing that defines human beings, the one thing that is unique to human beings above all others, I have this vision of a million and a half years ago a humanoid tribe. They had been, for whatever reason, enjoying the results of the occasional brush fire. And the fire would roll across the savanna and they would run out of the way of it because it would kill you if you were too close to it. But after the fire passed, then they would go and they would find the carrion that had been killed and they would eat that and the cell walls would be broken down and they'd be able to eat and just sop up all of that nutrient and they would enjoy the warmth of the stones that had been heated. And then one time, and maybe it happened a thousand times and maybe it happened just once, but in my fantasy, there was a young woman about 13 years old and she looked at those glowing coals, and she had a vision, and her vision was, I'm going to take this with me. And we play with fire all day, every day. Today, you've already lit, what, 20, 30, 40 fires? Every time you start a car, you're lighting a fire. Every time you turn on a light switch, you're lighting a fire. The human ability to have played with fire is simply what defines us. Our ability to play with fire has allowed us to simply control the entire planet, maybe to our ultimate demise, but certainly it has put us in the driver's seat. 
God, I love fire, and I love the fact that human beings know how to play with it. Uniquely, among all species that I know of, the ability to carry and play with fire. Wow. I can see why you like to fly. You like the 10,000, 50,000-foot view. Yeah. Oh, I like that view. Yeah. Yeah. I do. I do love that view. (laughs) Um, Well... I was wondering if you could stick around. We do something called the lightning round. Yes. And I don't have the questions with me, so I have to remember them on the top of my head. Okay. Are you up for this? I am completely up for this. Okay, we'll be right back. Basic Folk is brought to you in part by Winterbirds. Their new album, Shaker Songs, takes 18th and 19th century sacred texts from American shakers and puts it to all new progressive bluegrass compositions, exploring the poetry of this unique community. You can find Shaker Songs by Winterbirds on Bandcamp. Basic Folk is brought to you by motivational life coach Janet Forrest, who believes it's never too late to ask, what do you want to be when you grow up? Mention Basic Folk and you'll receive 25% off your first month of coaching when you visit JanetForrest.com to get started. And thanks to WIUP in Indiana, Pennsylvania, which airs Basic Folk 2 p.m. Eastern every Saturday. You can listen on 90.1 if you're in the Indiana, PA area or at their website, WIUPFM.org. Okay, Livingston Taylor. You ready for the lightning round? I am indeed, Cindy. Okay, these are just one word or one sentence answers, so keep it 10 feet off the ground. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, what is your coffee order? My coffee order is uh, latte, no foam latte, regular milk uh, with an extra shot. Dogs, cats, or something else? I'm a dog person, although I like an occasional cat. Favorite vacation you've ever taken? Favorite vacation was my wife and I, my wife Gail and I, went down to Patagonia, Argentina in Chile, and the dagger of South America sticking into the heart of the Antarctic Ocean and enraging it and the winds howl out of the west and they're lifted up and they snow perpetually in those mountains. And the glaciers and the plains, all Patagonia. Very How's the powerful. food? The food was fine. Yeah. Um, um, yeah. The that Argentinian. I I eat meat, and so uh, Argentinian lamb is good indeed. Favorite U.S. city? Favorite U.S. city. I love Boston, Massachusetts. Wow, that's a great answer. Uh, first record you bought with your own money? First, oh, oh, that's a great question. I think the first record I bought with my own money would have been the writing of Burt Bachrach and Hal David as sung by Dion Warwick. God, I love Bachrach and David and, and the meticulous assembly of those songs and Dion Warwick's delivery. What is your dream collaboration? My dream collaboration would be, um, and it happens periodically, is when I get to play with my brother James. Boy, he's good. And I sound great when I'm playing with him. <laughs> okay, one last question. Um, Fender, Martin, or Gibson? Fender, Martin, or Gibson, it would be Martin. Martin is a terrific guitar, but I say to people who collect guitars and 
the a wealthy lawyer who will have 35 guitars. My suggestion is sell 34 of them and practice one of them. <laughs> Thank you so much, Liv. Really a pleasure, Cindy. Thanks. That was a really f- interesting interview. My two favorite parts were when he was talking about how James Taylor would beat him up when <laughs> they were kids and he was trying to learn guitar. And then also the thing at the end about fire was like, I don't know, I'm just like, I am so lost in what you're saying, but man, don't stop talking about fire. It's great. Also, I think that Liv had the best lightning round. I don't know, it was really interesting. Anyways, uh, Laura McCarthy produces Basic Folk. Lindsay Myers is our business manager. Music by Alex Stanton of Townspeople. I'm your host, Cindy Howes. Please sign up for our newsletter. You can do so at cindyhowes.net. That's also where you can check out some show notes. And you can be part of our Facebook group called Basic Folk Basics. And I hope to see you here next week. Thanks. Bye.